0: This is the EcoIQ Project, I'm Aaron Henderson, and um, my guest today is the world-renowned and much-loved author and farmer, Dr. Charles Massey. Um, Charles, you're a farmer of 35 years and you developed the prominent uh, Merino stud, uh, Sheep Stud Severin Park and was awarded an Order of Australia Medal for your service as Chair and Director of a number of research organisations. You've authored several books, the most recent being the widely acclaimed and celebrated The Cry of the Reed Warbler, where you interview and share the stories of more than 80 farmers engaged in regenerative agriculture. It's a real pleasure to welcome you on the show today, um, uh, Dr Charles Messi, Um Welcome to EcoIQ, EQIQ EcoI, uh, Project. No, thank you very much. Great to talk across such a large distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The modern, modern wonders of technology. I, I think people are probably quite kind of getting a bit more regular to this kind of uh, interaction in the, in the recent kind of right. situations. Just before we start, uh, um, uh, Charles, I'm really interested. What's your, you know, how how are you doing with all the, you know, general uh, global situation? What's your take on it a little bit?
1: Yeah, look, I think, um, I mean, it's tragic, obviously. I, I suspect it might give uh, our modern civilization a, a shock that some of our habits might need to be reconsidered, like too much air travel uh, and those sorts of. Uh, Issues, so maybe out of the the dark clouds, some some good things will come. I suspect. Mm, mm,
0: mm. Yeah, it seems to have a lot of uh, um, a few wake up calls into a few key areas, really. Not not the least of which I think is a, is a food um, uh, uh, supply chain issue. Because I mean, I just talked with the we had a recent interview with Joel Salatin and Darren Doody together, and Joel Salatin said his his sales. I mean, his restaurants are out of out of the picture, but his his sales of um you know of of, of you know, to the customer directly is up by 400%. And I heard that echoed by a lot of other um, kind of local farmers and producers. So it seemed to have like a kind of a knock-on effect that, you know, like you said, there's, there's a silver lining there maybe. That, that's very
1: much the case in Australia. There's, um, uh, you know, farmers supplying direct. Um, they've tripled or quadrupled their demand. And, um, and things like demand for uh, vegetable seed and uh, how to do, how to vegetable garden kits, those sort of things have gone through the roof.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I, think, I think the lesson, too, is that in Australia particularly, um, we originally had 20, 25 major food distribution outlets. They have now shrunk to about 10. So if, if we get big droughts, big floods, big bushfires or COVID, um, the system is incredibly vulnerable. And, and uh, so there's a lot of movements now to develop a more regional food economy and more local uh, interconnections. So that'll be another positive, I think.
0: Yeah, I've really found it um, in Australia in particular, I've always found it a bit, I mean, really Australia, I feel is one of the bastions of of, of regenerative agriculture because you have so many on the ground, you have so many amazing people that come up with so many amazing uh, technologies in this area. Um, and uh, but I, I'm always a bit confused by the by the general political approach and even the scientific scientific community approach to that, that's not really recognises that throughout the world as it should be, and really that it's not be, you know they're not being integrated into the into the kind of mainstream I guess you'd say. What you, you think? Uh, how, how how heavy um, that is? You think it will be a cha- that will, might change a little bit during the in this kind of situation where there's there was a, basically a crisis really. No, that's a really good
1: question. Um, I mean, we're going back to the deeper issues, uh, which is that our planet has now definitely moved into the Anthropocene. You know, our nine, the nine planetary systems that sustain our Earth uh, are severely destabilized, and, and the six biogeophysical ones. Uh, industrial agriculture is a major destabilizer, if not the major st- destabilizer. But what's behind it all is If you go back a step, you look at uh, human civilizations over the last sort of 10 millennia since agriculture evolved, they all tell themselves this great story. It can be the emperor or a religion, et cetera, but ours is, is a suicidal story, which is endless growth for the sake of growth. So, so, so once you get a driving philosophy that dominates the world's biggest economies, uh, you have government policy supporting it, you have the big multinationals driving it, in Australia particularly, but also elsewhere. Uh, We have the research organisations, government policy, their departments, the departments of agriculture, the universities, and the teaching in the universities, it's all driving this endless growth economic rationalism. And um, and so regenerative agriculture is, is a major, um, it, it's a challenge to the dominant philosophy. And, and at the moment we have, there's only one course, and that's only recent, in regenerative agriculture. The rest of them are very strongly industrial agriculture taught and no support from departments of agriculture. So it's an insurgent. A movement, but it is really
0: accelerating now. It's starting to go exponentially here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, it's something. It's something I've found um a little bit uh, disturbing about the whole situation now is this idea of uh, um of agendas underneath and behind a lot of things, and really in the agricultural sector. This this. um, agendas behind things is not is not a very new thing. I'm wondering if you could just um, touch on that a little bit how, in your experience, because I mentioned, I heard you mentioned with the talk with Alan Savory that you've been trolled a little bit by some of the big bigger companies talking about glyphosate. What's your um, What's your take? You know, uh, on the on this uh, on the agenda from behind? You know, those big end companies of keeping these kind of movements down a little bit.
1: Well, I think everyone. Um would be aware of how Monsanto, when it was in existence, uh, aggressively defended its products. Kerry Gillum published the book Whitewash. Uh, I know she had a very rough time. Um, And I know a senior soil scientist in America who who will remain nameless survived a hit on his life that was more than suspicious and then gets threatening phone calls because he's been talking out against um, glyphosate for a long while. Mm. And, um, and I know stories in Australia where uh, um, an organisation equivalent to uh, MOM in America, Mothers for Organic Food, uh, they had professional trolls repeatedly crashing their websites and those sorts of things. And uh, when my book came out, uh, uh, there's a major article published in The Guardian and, and the... Uh, the people who tracked all the Facebook and other feeds could pick out the um, signatures or the, the name or the style of the trolls that professionally are paid to, uh, to sow doubt. And uh, it's the same as we've seen in uh, climate and uh, other areas. The merchants of doubt are very professional at sowing seeds of, uh, of doubt to corrode the, uh, the challenging,
0: uh, uh, you know, position. hmm how, how important, you, how important do you think it is? Um, the idea of censorship in this kind of time, you know, censorship of uh, of, of what we're doing. Look, I think it's really important that we just
1: ignore it. To me, it's a, it's a healthy sign. We've got them worried, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the way I look at it. And, and the momentum is is growing. It, it's uh, it's it's almost a, a, a healthy democracy coming from underneath. <laughs> Mm. Whether it's the farmers or the consumers, the free thinking, uh, and there's an excitement, and uh, and also ethically, spiritually, I see it as, as a healthy thing. It, it's it's for the betterment of of society and family and the planet. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. A po- positive. Look, I, I Go ahead.
0: Don't waste any time worrying about the negative. No. Yeah. 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 Yeah, fantastic. Really positive message. Sorry, uh, how What was that? You're right. I just um, I, I wanted to, uh, just before we go on a little bit, I wanted to um, uh, clarify this to our listeners. Um, uh, I feel regenerative agriculture is a very unique approach today and one of the things that makes it unique is it's a movement of farmers mostly, although there's a lot of people, you know, new farmers and wannabes and everyone coming in, you know. Thank God I think that's great. Um, and I think one of the things that, that about that is it makes, there's usually a bottom line to me. And so all solutions that can fulfill the purposes of regen, regenerative agriculture are relevant, which is something a little bit different I think, with a lot of um, other systems, also alternative systems. Um, uh, could, could you explain to us just a little bit briefly about what's the significance of regenerative agriculture as opposed to any other um, systems or approaches? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Look, regenerative agriculture is nothing new. It's going back to very old principles, and and really it means working with nature. Uh, And I I sort of define it in terms of complex adaptive systems that um, if if we start to regenerate soil and all the other landscape functions, what we're doing is enabling the ancient wisdom of nature that's co-evolved for millions of years to self-organise herself back to health. Mm. So it's really stepping back and enabling the, the, the four major landscape functions that drive a healthy landscape to get working again and, and, and she will find solutions. It's called emergent properties within a system. And um, so that, that's really the essence of it. And, and once you get your healthy soils, healthy water cycle, healthy biodiversity functions, and, of course, your the, the healthy solar system, the photosynthesis system with more green plants. Um, that's what drives the whole process. And then when you get a lot of active soil biology, they're pulling in a thousand-fold more nutrients than you'll, than you'll get from an industrial system, which relates to human health. So mm. all this isn't just about landscape and planetary health. It's about very much about human health as well because that's the other side of the equation. It's the increasing demand for healthy food off healthy landscapes that is is the other incentive and
0: the exciting component of this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What, what, what makes the um, – the, you, you mentioned a few different things there and I would like to go into a few of them, but uh, I know for you that this, um, this uh, uh, concept of self-organizing adaptive systems, um, it's a very – like you mentioned it before in a few talks that it's very exciting for you. What makes it so exciting for you as a concept?
1: Well, it's. um, I went back and did my PhD, which led to this book in my late 50s. So I'd been, you know, more than nearly 40 years away from my undergraduate studies. And in that time, when I'd gone farming, et cetera, all the exciting processes in the computer world and complex systems, et cetera, the systems thinking had emerged. And and, uh, it was only with that thinking and, and all the modern science that we came to understand how systems like uh, how the earth operates or a landscape or a farm or a city or even the World Wide Web, they're, they're all what are called complex adaptive systems, which is that there's thousands of things going on. And uh, if they're destabilised, they have a capacity to equilibrate and, and return to a healthy complexity. And um, So what industrial farming does, it simplifies natural systems. It simplifies landscapes just down to a few plants, a few harmful industrial additives like chemicals. Regenerative agriculture is turning that around, encouraging huge diversity in soil and plants and the way animals are grazed and biodiversity. And once you get all that going, which is how nature co-evolved over millions of years, she will then do the work for you and, and actually will
0: self-organise back to a healthy complexity, which, of course, is far more resilient as well. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of uh, – I think there's a lot of very deep things in, in, in what you said there. Um, I just wanted to touch on, on one of them, and that's that uh, it's – I think it's a very – it's a bit of a pervasive um, – thing that happens today that that sometimes people get really seen as like the problem that, that, uh, that human beings are the, the issue today. And, uh, um, and even on the extreme end, you know, it'd be better if we weren't here. And I think that, um, regenerative agriculture is just in my opinion, as it seems, it seems like that it's really accepts the role, um, of human beings as, as being a very possible, very possibly being an accelerator in, in, um, in, uh, in in reaching this kind of tipping point that you're talking about, where the, where it starts to be self-organizing, is are, how, how do you are you positive about you, you always stay positive about the the effect that human beings can have on the have on um having interaction with our with our ecology.
2: Look,
1: you've raised a really important philosophical point. Mm. Uh, I mean, at the moment, um, and it's come about since. Uh, after the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, when, when we move from, <clears throat> and I talk about this in my book, we're like an Indigenous society and even a medieval peasant. We, we didn't see ourselves as indivisible from Mother Earth. We're, only, we're just one of the many parts. But once we went through that scientific and industrial capitalist revolution, we now see ourselves as separate. And that, that's what you're honing in, honing in on. Uh, and the key point is that... Modern industrial society, humans do not see themselves as, as, intimate, as an intimate part of Earth. We're separate and superior, and so we try and dominate, and that leads to destruction, which is clearly why we're in the Anthropocene. I think a regenerative agriculture movement like the organic movement and others, and, and, and this, is, this is no news to any Indigenous society, we see ourselves as a small part of the whole system and therefore we have to play
0: our constructive role. So it's a huge philosophical difference. You're quite right. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I was, I was kind of curious about your opinion on Charles is this particular um, thing that I noticed in regenerative agriculture that, that um, as opposed to the kind of nihilistic thing of, you know, we'd be better off if we weren't here, is that particularly that specific point that um, we can actually be uh, – we can actually succeed, accelerate systems that by themselves, they would take a long time. And so we could actually help, you know, we can, we could be really destructive in a, a large part was what we're doing now, or we could actually be like a, a force for, for more accelerated change to, to more abundance, to more fertility.
1: You're absolutely right. And, and uh, I'll give you one, just in a uh, clear example. Uh, Recently I've been working with Paul Hawken who, uh, as you know, wrote the uh, impressive drawdown book with 70 or 80 scientists analysing the sort of 80, 90 best methods to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and and bury it away. Uh, In the top 20 of those, top 80 or 90, out of the top 20, 50% are variants of regenerative agriculture. So if you add them all together and just call it regenerative agriculture, uh, the, pra- the practices of regen ag are number one in addressing climate change, mm. and that's only one of of the six major biogeophysical systems. You know, we can impact biodiversity, land systems change, or the water cycle, uh, and the phosphorus nitrogen cycle. So. Uh, this, this is a hugely important area of open because we have some of the very best solutions to addressing the Anthropocene if we are allowed to do it and, and stop the harmful practices.
0: I feel there's, um, uh, after the recent um, destructive fires in Australia, I just want to touch a little bit on this idea of biosensitivity, as it's called by Martin Steppen, and after recent fires, destructive fires in Australia, because we did hint on it a little bit before about um, talking about Indigenous cultures. Um, I sought out a few. I wanted a different perspective on the show of regarding fire on the land, and it was a very difficult. I mean, I'll be honest; it was a quite a difficult uh, thing for me to do because it, I had a lot of paradigms about what fire means on the land. And uh, you know, I'm always I had ecology approach, and you got to get animals on the land, and a very, very different approach to you know fire. It was just like a no-no. So, um, and I, I, I reached out to um Victor Stephenson, and you know, we're going to have him on the show soon. You know, um, hopefully. But they did send me his book and I'm just finishing reading it now. And um, despite, you know, I had extreme reservations, the level of – I was just blown away by the level of complexity and nuance in in reading landscape and interacting and and the way, you know, they would deal with, you know, with fire on the land. And um, I think it can be very easily ignored these days in favor of numbers and studies but um, once, you know, that farmer's instinct was very highly valued and relied upon more than, you know, and more than that, even as a skill to be that you can actually, you know, hone up. I'm just really curious about what's your view about the importance of developing this, you know, what Martin Stappan, you know, Dr Martin Stappen called, about, called biosensitivity as part of our approach to engaging land and country?
1: I think it's fundamental, uh, absolutely fundamental. I mean, I've read Stephenson's book and, a program on him. I happen to work and am a good friend with a senior lawman locally from the Ngurrigo people who is one of the other leading burners and we run burning workshops here. And if you examine Victor's and, and uh, this other person, Rod Mason, their, their approach, it's, it's not just doing a bit of burning, their, their whole approach mm. to sustainable land management uh, includes fire. It's one of their many tools. And and uh, through thousands of years, they've learnt when to do it, how delicately to do it and for what reason. And um, if we, it, it's urgent that we start to bring them on board now to uh, regenerate our landscape. So it's very much a key part of the whole thing. And and I, I, the more time I spend with a senior lawman like Rod, the more I realise I'm in kindergarten. They're, they're <laughs> extraordinary knowledge uh, of how landscapes work and how fire works. You know, it, if you burn at the right time, you you stimulate proper seed generation and you lay down healthy charcoal and uh, and you can shape a, an entire landscape to, to prevent the Holocaust fires. And uh, uh, I think there's now a lot of inquiries in Australia as how can we meaningfully bring them into playing a role in reducing what clearly with this climate change, it's going to be increasingly bad Holocaust-type fires.
0: Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> what, I really, what really blew me away about, um, about uh, Victor's approach and, you know, all the stories he told about um, the two elders was just the, the level of nuance in the, you know, in the, in the, like you said, in the reading of the landscape, but also the effect of the fires. I mean, it, when, when he talked about it, it was, it was very, you know, some of the fires would start and finish, in, you know, in a very, very short amount of time. And the green, when he's talking about the green, it would come back immediately. It was a very different concept to me. But, I, I mean, I'm really curious what you think. Are we ready for that level of nuance? Because it's, very, it's a very pervasive thing that we've got in today. It's just been very, we like to go on the extreme. It's black or it's white. And it's very, this, do you think we're ready for that nuanced approach? I don't think many of us are because industrial
1: agriculture has taught us to dominate, simplify, destroy. Mm. Um, to, to flip, to, to have a complete flip where you respect the complexity of nature and its functions and tread very gently, is a huge mental shift. But you know, I'll just give you one example. The, um, if you think about um, some of our landscapes here late in the evening, there's a, a switchover point when um, uh, in the photosynthesis cycle when uh, the capture of carbon dioxide switches and oxygen begins to release. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about late in the evening and you get about a foot of, uh, of heavy moisture laid in there sitting over the land, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's, it's those sort of moments that the Indigenous people have learned to do a lot of their burning. And so they've sort of anticipated modern scientific knowledge just through observation and skill. Uh, over a long time I mean that's just one example they'll burn different times but they they had this intimate knowledge of of the condition of the vegetation and the species and the time of year and as you say it's highly nuanced absolutely highly nuanced and uh, it's going to take us a long while to empower
0: more of that and to learn from them Mm-hmm. How, how do you, how do you see practically i mean do you do you see regenerative agriculture as a way to because i mean when i when i thought about it after reading victor's book and and you know just putting it next to you know the people we, we bring on the show about um, the talk about regenerative agriculture um it seemed to me in a funny way they were very very similar in in these in this kind of uh getting um Getting, engaging with, with, uh, with nature, engaging with ecologies for productive purposes, which is, seems, you know, very antithetical, and then, and then kind of, you know, uh, getting, into, uh, getting in the right position and then kind of getting out of the way. That's something I've heard echoed from, you know, across the board. It's, uh, um, it, do, do you feel that regenerative agriculture has that possibility to offer this, you know, um, like open that doorway to a nuanced approach, you know, because, you know, it's a package that's called regenerative agriculture, which is a bit easier for people to take on.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a broad church uh, regenerative agriculture, yeah. um, I, but I definitely, I definitely feel uh, there is there is room, but uh, it'll have to, it'll take a lot of apprenticeship, and uh, hopefully to empower the indigenous in the role, and, and uh, they can't just come in and do a job and get out. It's it's living in the landscape and and. Um, noticing that this afternoon might be perfect, I'll wander down and do it, rather than a national park saying, you've got to be here on July the 2nd and we're going to burn 100 acres or something. It just doesn't work like that. And whether we can, we're going to see the bureaucracies of national parks and governments be able to open up flexibly to a different worldview, I, I sincerely doubt. So maybe it is up to private owning um, yeah. regenerative farmers yeah. and the, uh, the Indigenous land corporations that can execute it. I mean, I was involved in... Uh, I was lucky to visit uh, a nature conservancy project up in the uh, top end of Australia, in the Northern Territory, where they had come in and um, take, uh, bought, and then um, empowered with Indigenous land corporation, uh, 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 what was a very uh, degraded, beaten up cattle station. And one of the things they did initially was bring in the Indigenous elders, men and women, and. Um, got them to to start their cultural burning. And and instead of burning at the hot season, which released huge amounts of uh, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, they swung to cool burning. They reduced emissions by 85% and were paid carbon credits for doing so. So there's some huge opportunities because our Indigenous people, and particularly the top half of Australia, which is a massive continent, they own uh, huge amounts of land now. And... um, if this can start there, it's going to it's going to play a big role in, um, in, in climatic issues.
0: It's uh, um, I feel I feel it hasn't I feel has it hasn't, still hasn't come home yet as uh, um, as like common knowledge the significant impact impact um, of of uh, restoration of land of uh, um, can have on the significant impact on restoration of land by having of managing animals on the land. And I know it's like a big switch from what we're talking about now because, I mean, the management of Indigenous um, Australians on with, with animals is very, very different because it's using the tool of fire. But um, it seems like with regenerative agriculture, the main, the biggest tool really for, uh, um, you know, I'm looking for your correction definitely, of restoration of land is animals, getting, managing animals on the land to accelerate the, that succession. Um, how, how important do you feel it is to, you know, for animals being a part of that? of that um, of that interaction, of that restoration. Now, look, it's
1: a key question, I heard a very good question. Uh, if you think about the best tool of many which regenerative agriculture has in its quiver, um, the one that's going to impact the broadest number of hectares or acres worldwide is without doubt uh, regenerative holistic grazing, whatever you want to call it, mm. which, as, as you know, is really replicating um, the, the 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 pattern of of the vast animal herds in Africa, the migratory herds, and in America as well, North America particularly, um, where these vast herds were constantly on the move, driven by predators, and they they would briefly graze and then dung and urine. And um, Alan Savory, the wildlife ecologist in Zimbabwe, who really triggered this whole realization, just kept asking himself, "How come?" These grasslands with millions of animals are the healthiest. So, what's evolved is a human approach, a human approach to managing that. And, and, you know, if you think about North America, there was probably 80 million buffalo and another 70 million ungulates also doing that. And they were healthy grasslands as well. You know, some places in the prairies, 700 different plant species. And now we're finding in Africa, Australia, South and North America, and, and through Europe that when well applied, this this sort of mimicking of that natural animal movement, high density but long rest, is starting to regenerate uh, tens of millions of hectares and, and, it, and it is most exciting. So in terms of, 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 the, of the largest impact, yes, you're quite right. It's um, this regenerative grazing, holistic grazing uh, shows enormous promise and, and pulling down lots of carbon and recycling nutrients and, and you know, impacting all those other... Um, Key functions that, that uh, have been destabilised and tri- tipping us to the Anthropocene.
0: And, and uh, um, how, uh, so, uh, but also, um, the, the, c- could you um, tell me correctly if I'm wrong, but also the acceleration is a lot faster because we talked about size, you mentioned, you know, obviously the biggest impact, but is that also in, in terms of um, speed of restoration that um, I'm correct in saying that it's also faster with animals on the land being managed properly?
1: Well, currently, most. The, the biggest form of desertification worldwide and, and you've got to bear in mind that since the development of agriculture, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand years ago, human beings have uh, turned into deserts, nearly 40% of all land suitable for agriculture. Mm. And the majority of that is through poor grazing management, through overgrazing and set stocking uh, in continents like Africa and Australia and the Americas. And, um, so, you know, the, the flip side of that is well-executed grazing uh, can start turning that around because you can restore deserts up to a point uh, and there's some classic examples. And, uh, and then you can start uh, restoring all those other key landscape functions. So
0: it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a method of enormous promise. Mm-hmm. It's a very curious thing that, what, you know, what we said before about the, the human element being, you know, possible of um, an immense destruction but also, you know, being having the possibility of having the biggest impact, we also find it here mirrored in the animals, in the animal approach. You know, if you engage animals in the wrong way, it's the biggest destructive thing. If you're in the right way, it's, uh, it, it can be the biggest instigator of, of change.
1: That's absolutely right. But, you know, there's so many other avenues that are now popping up, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the new types of cropping, uh, what's called pastoral systems, you know, food trees in a, in a landscape and, and uh, agroforestry and everything else, so you're well aware of those, but uh, in, in terms of the broadest impact uh, acreage or hectare-wise, uh, yes, it's probably uh, uh, the most exciting tool, but uh, there's others that dovetail with it.
0: I'm really curious about your experience about um in writing the, writing your book um the the cry of the uh, reed warbler the call of a reed warbler sorry um you interviewed I think was it eighty farmers um Charles or was it one hundred and fifty I heard two different kind of
1: um well I, I've probably spoken to hundreds upon hundreds now but from my PhD thesis um I, I was able to travel across the southern half of Australia into different bioregions and interview 80 different farmers, yes. And um, um, having made a lot of mistakes myself in managing land over 40, 50 years, um, that's why I went back to university to uh, try and find out my key question was what made these farmers change from their bad practices like I used to have? And it turned out in about 60% of the cases it was some sort of major life shock that cracked open their mind, if you like, like a tortoise shell that hit with a hammer, mm. you know some were burnt mm. in a bushfire, some went broke, some uh, had a major disease, um, some were were um, uh, had chemical accidents, those sorts of shocks and, and uh, were what actually opened their mind that there had to be a better way and uh, and then the other forty percent um, they rather more biophilic that way inclined to always a series of little shocks etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh i can't help thinking now um you know this last summer in australia uh shocking three-year drought we're still in a shocking drought here mm-hmm. only um one-tenth of our annual rainfall then we had the bushfires uh, and floods and then COVID, um, yeah. I think the shocks are going to increase and so uh, change, it's causing people now to re-examine their practices.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned this 60, I, I was really uh, blown away by this 60, 60% of people that had crisis, um, but I, one, way, one area I was blown away but the other was kind of very logical for me because um, my kind of, because of my pathway was a lot dealing also with human transformation and the psychology of it, and you know, and, and spiritual practices surrounding that, I'm really curious on your thoughts on 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 the and you know your experience interviewing for your book and for your um, thesis about your thoughts on human transformation because it seems very almost consistently across the board that the trans, some kind of human transformation follows on the heels of, or sometimes even before. This uh, transformation in land practices of, of of farmers, and I mean also people that are just getting into it as well. What, what's your what's your um thoughts on and the importance of um of human transformation in this you know element of transformation of practice that we're talking about? Well, that
1: that's the whole point of what I, I was just sort of making. Those eighty farmers, sixty percent of them making that radical shift. Hmm. It was classic psychological paradigm transformation what we're talking about is 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 a changing of our mental paradigms which are very powerful almost locked in cement and and clearly it it needs that hammer blow or that shock to change it and and what was interesting the only research I could find around the world in this transformative change area was some research in America on uh, transformative learning and they had almost a similar result about 60 percent uh, seem to need some sort of shock to crack open that paradigm, that tortoise shell carapace of the mind. So um, you're right; that the, that the issue here is transformation. And um, um, you know, the, uh, there's, there's an old saying in, in the Australian bush that the only people who like change are babies with wet uh, diapers or wet napkins <laughs> <laughs> So. Um, <laughs> So it's discomfort and shock that seems to trigger change a bit. Mm, mm,
2: mm.
0: How 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 did it feel um, doing interviewing all these as you went along as you you know progressed through all the talking to me? You are also a farmer yourself for thirty five years, so you definitely farmers like to talk to other farmers in general. Hopefully, still today. But um, a, after you know going through moving through all these different interviews and talking to this you know large number of farmers. How did you start to feel as you progressed through it? What was the feeling that you started to get, you know, the, the picture you started to get of, of, of what's going on, but beyond maybe beyond the, the numbers and everything, but what, what was the feeling you started to get from it? Well,
1: I'd, I'd already uh, made the shift myself before I undertook the PhD. That's why I did it. I was really intrigued what was the underlying pattern. And uh, first of all, I was able to talk to some of the leaders in the regenerative movement. So my learning experience... Uh, was enormous, um, and it, even though I'd been trained in science, zoology, was always human ecology. Uh, that was my, my pet courses at, at the university, so my PhD was in human ecology, so it was in holistic thinking uh, rather than reduction of science, and um, it became clear that uh, the, the farmers that had made the move um, because of that shock, uh, that transformative move, Genuinely more open to holistic thinking, um, to take on new ideas. Uh, generally already, but sometimes it was the shock that started to open their mind. And then there are some now excellent bodies in Australia in agroforestry, in the grazing, that teach social learning and transformative thinking uh, as a result. So there's quite, you would understand with your psychology background that. Um, this, this social learning uh, approach through learning from each other's and with each other's and being supported is', is quite profound if you're making a shift to uh, what can be quite dangerous in in terms of your your local society or whatever can be alienating in, in, in making a sort of paradigm philosophical shift you, it can be isolating and you need support and training and, and uh,
0: you know um, mutual mutual learning as you're doing that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really. This is just my personal opinion, my personal bent, but I really feel as a, as a, as a tool. I, I really appreciate people that get into the human aspect, but I really feel as a tool for, for growth. I mean, um, and, and personal transformation. The, the tool of getting connecting to land through you know approaches like regenerative agriculture. Pretty, that's all I'm seeing really today that's relevant for that as a tool. I mean, it's, it was mirrored by the words of Masanobu Fukuoka. It said, you know, I don't know if you know that, you know, that quote, but he said that um, the farming is not about growing crops. I'm mangling the quote a little bit. Um, it's not about the growing of crops, but it's about transformation of a, of a human being, which kind of flips it on its head a bit. It's not about so much about saving the earth, which, you know, we want to do, but it's more about, um, about our own growth, our own transformation to a, new, to a new state, you know, to a new better state where we can harmonise not only with nature but with ourselves. Have you, have you felt that have you have you noticed that in the, in some of the people you interviewed that they're also like they engage with each other in, in, a, in a more harmonious way
1: look look a hundred percent support of what you've just said uh, as Fukuoka said it, it's spot on it's it's all about the human dimension and that paradigm shift that philosophical shift and um what i've noticed is that when people have got out of Well, there's a number of factors when you move to regenerative agriculture. Yes, there's a a learning curve and you can have depressed production, but by and large you're reducing enormous costs. Mm. Your life becomes more meaningful because you can see regenerative factors in your landscape. You become more identified with nature because you're more open to it rather than being sort of blind to it. And um, so with that transformation, there's this generalising from my interviews and, and, and observations since, your sort of meaning in life goes to another level. There's sort of a more of excitement and enthusiasm. You're hunger, hungry to learn. So when when the transformative mind, when that transformative process occurs, with it goes a whole lot of other characteristics that are symbolic of that shift, that re- reorganisation in, in actually in your brain, that uh, you, you're sort of realigning all your... Um, you know you're building bricks to the way you think and your emotions which are connected to it so that's where the excitement and the drive and uh and the enthusiasm comes from and the hunger to keep learning so it's a it is a fascinating process this transformative
0: change
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah i can really feel the. i mean even without your your video i'm sorry we can't get the video on actually because i'd like to i like to be able to see the guests but even without that i can feel you you know you're very excited about this um uh, charles it really seems to uh, it seems to switch you on well,
1: uh, why wouldn't I be a heron? Because um, I, I reckon we've got three decades, four at the most, to turn things around, or, or we're going to destroy our planet and, and, and our species with it. So, um, short of hoping that some of the world leaders and their industrial system and their philosophy will change overnight, uh, I, I preach underground insurgency. The change now has to come from we farmers and the the urban and peri-urban people that support them by buying those healthy foods, and and uh, you know your your, your um, city market gardens and all those sorts of things. It's 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 the underground insurgency. We're the ones that got to change it because you know heaven's sake, uh, the change isn't coming from the top. Yeah, it's,
0: that's that's for sure. I mean, you know, I, the, I, it, it brings up a really interesting point for me personally though, because um, I did mention before we started the interview that my own personal journey took me away from you know I was. I'd already started to be a manager on a farm and then I decided, you know, I want uh, to get married and I want to do a little bit of a different direction, not because I wanted to get off it. That was actually I felt it was for me, but I had to take a bit of a detour and, you know, it took me a little bit off land, which is something I wanted to, I wanted to keep doing, but I had to, I had to um, make a bit of a detour. And, um, it, it caused me personally to internalise a lot of my journey because, and I, I had to keep learning. I had to know more about land, but I couldn't be on land for a, number, for a couple of years. And I just it brought up this point for me that um, I'm really curious in your opinion, you because you mentioned yourself as a collator of knowledge and a teller of stories and and regarding the movement of, of regenerative agriculture, how important do you think it is today to the learning and the sharing of knowledge on paper and, and you know more recently online in the internet, how important and impactful do you think that can be that just just those people that are like yourself that are really swimming in in, uh, in, in this, you also got a lot of experience. I mean, wrong, but I mean, you're swimming in a lot of knowledge and a lot of different um, literature from a lot of different people.
1: Look, I don't think we should um, disregard the role of serendipity and chance. I mean, that, that, that this regenerative agriculture movement, you can trace its roots really post Second World War, and I go through that in my book. But the acceleration undoubtedly is the last two decades, and it happens to coincide with. Um, with the modern media, the, the Facebooks and uh, the internet and all that sort of stuff, and 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 um, programs like yours now, and uh, things I watch my grandchildren wasting their time on. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's it's playing a huge role. Without doubt, it's playing a huge role. The YouTubes and all those sorts of things. The uh, it's all sort of um, feeding into the. Uh, accelerating shift and, and it's visual too a lot of it so mm. you know the, the classic uh, what's really powerful in, in the talks I try and do is um, the before and after shots or the side-by-side shots yeah. and, uh, yeah. and you know a picture paints a thousand words and, and uh, hence
0: the role of all these media programs you know including yours is, is really critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely something I would love to um, share with that audience one time. Is is is, is something where we do a, a you know a, a slideshow or something because you're really I, the, when I went through your content for the you know pursuant to the interview, that was actually you, you're right on the dot. That was the most amazing thing for me. You very you had a lot of really good slides of side to side farms with management without management. I mean, I'm, I, I've got a couple of those myself, but you seem to have <laughs> quite a quite a lot of them. The side by side and the before and after. I mean, the one in Mexico was. Was, yeah, it was, yeah, it's very very amazing stuff. To, like you said, the picture talks a thousand words. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, we are a visual species as well. So and, and in all this discussion, uh, we're not going to be able to keep changing these landscapes for the better and, and more healthy food without our urban um, partners coming on board, which they are now starting to do, uh, both within the way they grow their own food and, you know, uh, food gardens in the city but supporting organic farmers and farmers markets and that sort of stuff and and look recently I, i'm involved with a number of um, sort of more uh, big end of town senior business operations that are now putting in billions into philanthropy in in evolving uh, very ambitious new systems in regenerative agriculture in australia and elsewhere and and there seems to be a huge shift in the ethical philanthropy World in this last two, three years, where literally billions are starting to flow into this space. And that, that's not including things like the Disinvest program that started in the States. So it, it's like this, this wave is starting to build. And um, it, it, that's what gives me even more optimism. We've, we've got some of the, uh, you know, I've been involved luckily with some of the uh, leading business people in Australia out of merchant banking and, and big business. They have now seen the importance of this and are getting involved in investing in buying land and shifting to regenerative agriculture or looking at supply chains. There's wonderful stuff happening um, in the entire barrier reef catchment where regenerative grazing and things like the new organic sugarcane can, has the potential to eliminate all nutrient runoff into that wonderful natural resource of the barrier reef. So the solutions are going to touch on, on the public uh, persona as well. Uh, if you mention barrier reefs, let alone the uh, you know the, the real stuff occurring in the sort of drier in, hinterland, but there's some wonderful stuff happening now across the board, and um, I think the momentum is starting to swell, and, and uh, it, it's a really
0: exciting space now. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, um, from your book, uh, um, um, uh, Charles, what was the most significant story you can remember or the most, you know, the most one that like blew you away, the most impactful for you? What was the most like a significant story that you shared in in your book or, you know, that uses?
1: Well, I guess the metaphor I chose that led to the title of the book, Call of the Reed Warbler, Uh, and that story came about because uh, one of Australia's leading economists, actually, who I'd worked with because I've had previous battles in trying to um, uh, work in the wool industry, which was was Australia's major industry, and it was destroyed by bad politics. And uh, So out of writing that book, I got to know some of the, the leading economists, and this guy... He only had his farm nine years and I was visiting him just out of Canberra and he took me down to show his creek, which he'd uh, regenerated through uh, various techniques called natural sequence farming that Peter Andrews has evolved. Hmm. And as we drove down the neighbour, his farm it was what we call set stock. The sheep were left on it all year. It was bare. There was a lot of salt. The gully was eroding. When I got to my friend's farm, David's farm, The creek was uh, running. Uh, It was green a few hundred metres either side, and this is all within nine years. And uh, um, when we walked out in the running water, a small patch of reeds had just started. It must have been, the seed must have been brought in by a water bird. And while we were talking, suddenly out of these reeds came this call of a reed warbler. It was probably 100, probably 150 years since a bird of that type had last been in the valley before it was destroyed through European mismanagement. And in nine years of regeneration, this bird had decided this was a place to live again. And, and it was, to me, a, a real metaphor of hope and regeneration. And, um, but, look, there's lots of stories I can tell through the book. You probably couldn't remember them now, but that, that's why I chose that
0: lovely metaphor anyway. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to just um. I'd like to ask you if you could just share us a little bit. It's an amazing story. I'm. I'm really looking forward to um. Uh, reading the book and hopefully you know if you're if you're um. Agreeing to do it, we'll do. A, I'll do a bit of a review on on our um on our podcast. Um. I'm. A, I'm really curious if you would just share us a little bit briefly about the story about um Diane and Ian Haggerty. Uh, do you, you did. Am I right in, in assuming you did interview them for your <laughs> book? I'd love us to, if you could share a uh, little bit of their story because I thought it was very, you know, in terms of the actual the science of the soil and, and, and the, the change that happened quite fast over there, I think it's a very, it's a very special um, case.
1: Now, that, that's a perceptive question. Well, look, that, they were an intriguing couple. In, in, in the um, northwest cropping country of Western Australia, which is largely uh, not much better than beach sand, some of the soils are three point eight you know three point eight billion years old, which is three quarters of the age of the earth so there 's not many nutrients left, and they can get rain down to only four inches a year and uh, and an average twelve inch rain or something so it's not really you wouldn't think it was cropping country and the haggerty were traditional croppers and realized um, with all the chemicals and the unhealthy sheep and the unhealthy pasture, that they had to do another, there had to be a better way. And they work in tandem. Um, Diane um, does the animals, uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting your question earlier that uh, animals are critical. Well, in all the, the new regenerative cropping approaches, animals are integral to that landscape, whether it's what the Haggardies evolved, which is called natural intelligence agriculture, or pasture cropping, or multi-species covers, or no-kill cropping, the animals are integral to, to uh, recycling nutrients and, and enhancing it because the cereal crops we use, etc., w- were originally grasses in, in a diverse ecosystem that was grazed. Anyway, mm. the Haggerty's realised that cr- trying to crop in these tough rainfall areas with late frosts and things w- was, was, was uh, going, to, going to send them broke. So through a long process, they've evolved, I think, one of the, um, well, it is, it's, it's a world breakthrough because it can apply in huge areas in North Africa and other marginal areas as well as richer, richer climate areas. So what they've done, they've dispensed with industrial fertilisers and chemicals, and when they sow um, the seed, and they, all they've done is convert big modern machinery. So Ian, the, the farmer of the pair, he won't get in a tractor unless he can do two hundred and fifty hectares in one day. So they're big operators, and um, so when he sows the seed, cereal or canola, uh, they've they've evolved a method where they they use the biology which comes out of uh, concentrated worm juice, vermiculture, and at the moment that the seed goes in the ground, they they squirt the worm juice with, with the zillions of bugs and, and microbes in it and combine that with the goodies in compost extract, which is full of humates and fulvic acids and humic acids, all those wonderful things. So you've got the food for the bugs and that is their combined fertiliser and, and disease control mechanism. And, and now um, they're not only getting equivalent yields to neighbours, they've eliminated 90% plus of their industrial costs mm. and their plants because, mm. because they're not pumping the plants with liquid nitrogen and other fertilisers. Um, they're far more resistant to frost damage and also rain damage at harvest. So the resilience of the system has gone up, the costs have gone down, and and, and to cap it all off, the grain is incredibly uh, healthy because there's no chemical residues in it. And we know that now glyphosate, for example, or, you know, AKA Roundup, uh, it's penetrated uh, all the modern foods that it's uh, sprayed in, so mm-hmm. with, with uh, absolute havoc to our, our system. So it's an extraordinary uh, evolution for
0: modern cropping.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 hear, I hear the, um, the Haggerty story quite a few times from different areas from Nicole Masters and, and Dr. Christine Jones, and, and then later from yourself. And I, I keep, I mean, I keep hearing about their, their, their story and it's very yeah, it's very, very inspiring. Um, I, I, I think that um, knowing about the science of, for me it was very significant, but I'm a bit of a geek in that. I like the, the soul science and all the, that it involves, the living systems, it's a big passion of mine. And a big hero, one of the big heroes of mine is Dr. Christine Jones. And something she talked about was the paradigm of soil, of soil forming the basis of, of importance in agriculture and ecosystems. And she was, she was saying we need to redirect our focus to see plants as the driver for, for these systems. You know, I, I just think it, really, it's, it's very, it speaks very strongly because sometimes we get so locked into looking at, you know, one system, this is the main thing we've got to do, we've got to do that. And just that small shift of focus to see the plants as the main thing can shift the whole you know the the whole approach towards uh, towards a regenerating uh, system how how significant do you think it is that something you know this kind of shift in perspective i mean then all you get the knock on effects of the cycles of water and nutrient carbon and everything I'm, correct me if i 'm wrong, but I mean it seems like really that's coming from the from the the interaction of plants you know when the plants are on the on the ground in the ground
1: yeah no look it's a fair point and and uh, you mentioned Nicole Masters and christine jones it it and some American women soil scientists as well as men. But the women soil scientists uh, in the, the big innovation centres of cropping, for example, in Australia and the States have had a huge role and, uh, you know, yeah. hats off to them because they're passionate and, and there's more you could mention. Mm. Um, so what was the guts of your question? I got sidetracked no, Plants versus biology. Um, yeah. Look, that's why I talk about, the, the landscape functions, and, I, and I've got a, a, a picture I, I show where, you, you know, Alan Savory and other ecologists came up with the four biogeophysical uh, landscape functions, you know, solar energy, which everything's derived from, our entire civilization runs on oil, which has came from plants <laughs> originally, um, so the solar system, the, uh, the water cycle, Uh, the soil-mineral cycle, in other words, the soil and then biodiversity. I've added the fifth, uh, a fifth one, which is the human social because it's our paradigms that will impact the others. And what I'm leading to is when I show those five functions, I have arrows going everywhere because they're all interrelated. Mm. But if we go into into a paddock or a landscape and overgraze or spray or kill you can put a red cross against all those arrows because you straightaway have stopped that indivisible interconnection. And so, yeah, there's been a focus on soil, and I think it needed to be because, you know, industrial teaching, uh, and I heard uh, I was lecturing the other day at university and uh, some of the students said in the soil lecture... The lecturer told them that their role is to kill all the soil biology so you can control the inputs. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's been necessary to get a focus on soil.
2: Yeah.
1: But, yeah, everything yeah. does start with the solar cycle and, and the secret mm. because the plants capture the carbon dioxide, turn it into sugars. It's the sugars that then drives uh, the soil biology, uh, which then accesses all the nutrients for healthy food back into the plant. Or buries the carbon down deep, but uh, so that's where it starts. But from that, the water cycle has changed because of the carbon and the deep roots, and 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 therefore the soil mineral cycle and then biodiversity as well. And, and uh, but the secret is getting those sugars into the soil, and then what, then the whole process starts, and you get more and more plants. You know, I have a rule of thumb as a land manager, mm. um, which mm. is that I see my role as the to put on my land as many of those solar panels for I can for as much of the year as I can and, and and on as big an area
0: because that is the whole driver of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's a bit fat, a bit funny? Well, funny is probably not the word. It's a bit sad, really. Do you think it's a bit um, a bit telling that the the most significant process and you know really I think it's a miracle, really mir- miraculous process of photosynthesis is the most boring thing that most people learn in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely
1: right. Um, I remember me, sleeping, I remember sleeping when I
0: was learning it. Sorry to interrupt, Charles. I remember but clearly when I learned it, I was very bored. And then when suddenly when I read, you know, uh, Nicole Master's book and I listened to a lot of uh, Christine Jones and, uh, and several other and it dawned on me, I, you know, I, I learned this when I was a kid and I, I remember falling asleep, I think, in the class.
1: Yeah, that's because it was taught by reductionist scientists. Probably, if, if it can be taught in an exciting, sexy way yeah. <laughs> with the big implications and and lovely pictures of all the soil bugs and and all that sort of stuff and the implications, uh, it's, I think it's it's all in the teaching in a way. Yeah, we've got to know the chemistry, but in your early school years and even further, you need to have mm-hmm. uh, a more imaginative way to describe, as you point out. The most important process of them all, because as I pointed out, we wouldn't be here without it, and uh, and the whole modern economy wouldn't be functioning without the the oil and the coal, etc. Mm-hmm.
0: How important is it for you? Um, the, the storytelling element for you, um, Charles. How important do you think it is that for you know for getting things through to people or or, or creating that change you're talking about? How, how significant is it for you? Just the storytelling element.
1: Well. Um, you're, you're doing it now uh, in creating stories. I think it's fundamental, absolutely fundamental. I mean, it, as a species, we are hard, hardwired for stories, sitting around a campfire mm. as hunter-gatherers. You know, there's evidence that when the modern Homo sapiens, sapiens, and I, they call us doubly wise, by the way, but a key part of that evolution to the very modern human was um, deeply embedded metaphor. We're, we're wired to comprehend and operate with metaphor. And stories are the cut through to that ancient human psyche as well. I mean, we're we're all made for it from the campfire onwards. And um, Mm. so that's why in in this book I wrote, even though it came out of a PhD that was a bit technical, I realised it had to be story to drive the examples through uh, and then, you know, fill in the
0: gaps around that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I personally like to break on that same, you know, on that same line, I, I personally like to break things down a lot in, into their metaphysical components. It's something I do a bit by habit because of, you know, what I, the, the areas that I learnt in and see the meaning over there. And especially regarding ecologies, it's something I've thought about a lot. The most fundamental uh, thing, quality I've seen in, in really in, in ecologies, and I'm obviously want to get your opinion, is, um, is that resonates and also down into the wider human systems is communication. And uh, in, uh, in, a, in Kabbalistic thought, which is Jewish uh, mystical thought, this element of communication is, is a, like the fundamental key in a human being um, between connecting the mind and the heart, you know, and, it, and this level of communication. I mean, if you look at also in ecology, the mycorrhizae fungi, which is if you could put a hierarchy, which you can't really, but if you could, I mean, that mycorrhizae is really the fundamental element which its whole job is just communicating, you know, in that, in that dance. And um, uh, um, I'm really uh, curious if it's something that you've thought about how how critical this element of communication is. We're talking about stories, which is just, you know, effective communication, we could say, how important this level of communication is in ecosystems and I guess among us as we're part of that. Is something that's something you've thought about as, as being important? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it
1: is fundamental. And I like the word dance as well. It, it is a dance and dance. Uh, You know, the exciting discoveries recently, um, not just between plants and fungi and uh, all their communication channels, but um, the recent exciting developments in uh, quorum sensing, how uh, Mm. when you get a critical mass in the soil, you've got plants talking to the microbes to switch on and off disease function and uh, plants saying, look, I'm a bit short on nitrogen and the uh, rhizobia bacteria will come in and make the nitrogen, i fix the nitrogen, and it's all about communication. But um, for we humans, um, this story uh, is fundamental because, as you said, it connects to the heart, and, and unless the heart is involved, you're not going to make that fundamental shift and, and give you the, the, uh, the impetus and the motivation to, to make the change. And, and I think that connects deep in the brain in the way we're wired.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you mentioned the the um, this fact of quorum sensing. It was a really uh, uh, incredible moment for me when I learned about the the truth of, of quorum sensing. Not a new thing at all, really. Just new new thing that we figured out that's what's going on. Um, how how w- is that something you learned early on the the um, quorum sensing? And maybe if we could just give our listeners a brief because I haven't talked about it before. Um, we talked about a little bit with Nicole Masters, but just a little brief introduction of what significance of quorum sensing is, and also in terms of inputs, you know.
1: Yeah, well, I've only come across it in the last few years. I know the microbiologists have been aware, looking at the literature, that they've been talking about it for decades, but it was only in the last 10 or a bit more years, I think, that some soil scientists like Christine Jones and others got talking to microbiologists. And, and, and so what it, what it did, this, this, this extraordinary uh, activity in the soil, it, 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 it actually explained why you can make healthy soil very quickly mm. if you use clever regenerative practices. So if you get your grazing right and get your organic cropping and agriculture right or whatever, what happens is that as, as more and more sugars go into the soil and diversity increases, you get to this critical tipping point. You've got to get that certain density of activity and diversity and sugars and chemicals. Um, and then, then you eventually get to this tipping point where you can make soil very rapidly. And, and so what it is 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 plants talking to the microbes, etc. Mm-hmm. but the language isn't Latin or French or English. It's, it's chemistry. It's hormones mm-hmm. and other chemicals. And so if they're suffering disease attack, they, they will shriek out that, hang on, we're being attacked. And, and in a healthy soil that's now experienced quorum sensing, they... they the defending agents, whether they're viruses or bacteria, whatever, will come in and can be nematodes and other things. So mm. it's it's this extraordinary interdependent uh, communication and, and mutual dependence. That uh, well, it's all about self-organization again. It's, it's it's you get to a certain level of triggering health and nature. It, it's you know, there's no accident that survived for billions of years and all that co-evolution and. And I emphasize the word co evolution. I mean, we, we've evolved because we've evolved with other things, not in isolation. And, and quorum sensing absolutely summarizes that mutualistic, intergener- intergenerational, and interdependent
0: behavior to, to develop a healthy system. Mm-hmm. Mm. T- tell me, uh, uh, Charles, just, I'm just curious about because you mentioned before this element of um, uh, self-organisation uh, and th- that it gets to a tipping point and then it just kind of takes over. Um, how does that fit in with the with the law of entropy, that everything eventually will, you know, reduce the chaos and, and the energy will go out of the system?
1: <laughs> well, you're getting into deep physics that I, <laughs> I, um, I'm not going to be able to address, but... <laughs> Personally, uh, a healthy biological system, uh, when it's functioning well, uh, almost seems to be uh, counter-entropic. Uh, it mm. does seem to deliver um, uh, organisation and, and structure and, and reverse that uh, the breakdown into chaos and entropy that you mentioned. But uh, I'm not, I don't know enough on the physics side to address <laughs> that. I, I do know it's being challenged.
0: Yeah, ah, that's that's the that's the main thing I was curious about. If you if you've heard that, that's that's interesting. Um, I, I just wanted to um, I wanted to touch a little bit on um, uh, before we do go about the um, about the human health, the factor of human health, because it's something I've I um, I've had a you know I've sometimes mentors in business and um, something I've heard uh, some I've, I've been taught before is a lot of people sometimes people want the same product just packaged differently. And if I bring it down to what we're talking about now, I feel sometimes the communication of something in a different way makes new connections for people and sometimes it makes a difference in them in making a shift or not. And you it really happened a little bit with you when you mentioned that we're, when we're eating meat, we're actually eating the health or the vitality of that system. And if it's not a healthy system, so you're eating something that's not healthy, you know, you know? and um, what that really meant for me is that we're, we're really eating, um, all levels of vitality, even from the from down to the minerals, being evolved through succession and being more available. Could could you speak a little bit about the the um before we go the regenerative um, farming as opposed to other approaches when it comes down to human health, how how significant it can be, and particularly regarding the consumption of meat, which is you know some people think it's great, some people can't stand it. Well, I mean, you've raised a topic that'll you could take
1: uh, weeks of lectures to try and cover, but. Um, uh, let's go back to taurus. Um, as a as a species, we co evolved in the African savannas, for, you know, a million years or so, as a hominid, and that meant that the women, the gatherers, and most indigenous women and in cultures around the world can identify at least five hundred food and medicine or plants. So they were collecting that. The men were usually the hunters, but they weren't just hunting meat. In those sort of landscapes, and same in America and elsewhere, but where, where humans evolved, those animals were browsing on shrubs as well as grass. Mm-hmm. Having worked with the wonderful Fred Prevenza, who studied phytochemicals in landscapes, the, the, the edible shrubs in all continents have tens of thousands of what I call phytochemicals, mm-hmm. phenols and terpenes and tannins mm-hmm. and all that. There's tens and tens of thousands of them. Those animals were ingesting that. They became, in their co-evolution, they became hardwired to um, identify those that helped in their immune system, et cetera, et cetera, with receptors in the gut and the alimentary canal, the brain, et cetera, et cetera. So there's meat and there's meat. I, I'm no um, supporter of the industrial system of what are called CAFOs, yeah. concentrated animal feedlots. So I think it's barbaric, and that's not healthy meat. But, if you get meat off a healthy regenerative landscape, it has all these thousands of phytochemicals, let alone the normal minerals and nutrients, etc, which we are designed to have for health for our immune functioning and our healthy functioning and our gut lining the whole lot of it. You start taking that healthy meat out of your system, you are going to open yourself up um, you know for, for, for a risk of uh, things like anemia and those sorts of things so If we then move on from that, um, the exciting thing about regenerative agriculture is that with a healthy soil, because if you look at a thing like a or fungi, it's uh, in a cubic metre of soil, it might have 25,000 kilometres of its micro-feeding tubes, the hyphae, bringing in those valuable nutrients. If you go and spray, plough, or kill off that and, and develop a monoculture, the fungi's gone. No one's accessing all the nutrients that lie in the soil and the micronutrients and the phytochemicals. So industrial food, whether it be meat or plants, are bereft of the health-giving nutrients, and hence the huge rise in the modern health diseases. There's no there's no accident they've all gone exponential, the modern diseases, the autisms, ADHs, cancers, all that sort of stuff, since industrial agriculture came along.
2: Yeah.
1: And in that period also, we've begun to learn about a different type of genetics called epigenetics, that there are two main forms of genetic inheritance. It's, it's, you'd be across all this, but one of them is sort of the changing of the DNA through mutation or whatever. But mm. the other one isn't changing of that, it's the switching on and off of genes. Mm. And if you look at some of Zach Bush and others' work lately, the wonderful doctor in autism and health in America at the moment, mm. we now know that uh, through epigenetics, which is can be immediately inheritable in the next generation. There are now um, the grandchildren of people with gut syndrome, et cetera, from the first generation, the grandchildren have also got it and they've never had glyphosate-tainted foods. It's been passed down once it's been incorporated in that first generation. So Mm. this is sort of compounding disaster if we're not careful. Mm. And uh, I think the latest stats on something like autism and obesity in America is that, Even before 2040, one child, this is say under tens in America, one child in three could have those major diseases and and that rate of disease will, will destroy any modern economy. So the simple message is we've got to get back to healthy food and away from this crap that we're putting onto the soil and into the food.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to i know you're really really passionate about you know you're a big advocate against um glyphosate and why why is, do you think it is glyphosate is is you know that's the main chemical that's so pervasive and such a problem now in you know in in our in our society i mean anyone who listen to zach bush it's it's it you know people in america at least in the Miss, mississippi especially the women have it in their breast milk so, I mean, why is it the up with that exactly? You know, what, maybe you just let us know how significant that is, that how important it is to get that off the land.
1: Well, uh, it, it's the major component of Roundup, uh, as people know, but um, the simple reason is there, there are a lot of worse chemicals around, have been, the DDTs and the lindanes and dicambers and that, but um, they've all been either banned or they're not appropriate. The, 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 why glyphosate became so popular, it was so easy and cheap to apply in broad acres uh, to control weeds, etc. And then the uh, GM scientists got on and were able to implant glyphosate-resistant genes so that you could actually pl- spray the crops as well without killing them. Mm. And then in, in recent times, they've begun to spray the crops right on the point of harvest to desiccate the grains that's better to harvest uh, which makes it even more likely. So it's it's really the world's most widely used herbicide. You know, million tons per annum around the world going out. That's the reason. It's it's just so much of it, and it's penetrated all the major industrial foods that come off those landscapes.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems to really um, uh, feed into a. Uh, you know, we didn't get into it, and I'm I'm happy we didn't get into it. We didn't need to. You had there was plenty of uh, you know exciting things to talk about. Um, but it, it it does seem to really feed into this kind of you know. Uh, idea of control from a lot of those big companies because when you control the, you know, when you control the seed, you control the, the land and also control the communication, you know, and it's a it's a big, uh, it's a, it can be a dangerous factor, you know. We, we didn't have this pre, preamble, you know, the, the bulk of it was a preamble, you know, on the, you know, on the positive solutions and, you know, the, the way forward and so many people are taking on. If we didn't have that, it would be a bit of a depressing story. Yeah,
1: and I think the other spin on that, which touches on an earlier question of yours of what defines regenerative agriculture, it's the fact that it is actually a knowledge-rich agriculture that anyone can own and you're not dependent on the top-down, big machinery uh, or or certainly the the intellectual property behind the big chemicals and and the the patented seeds. It's sort of knowledge-rich and it it delivers independence and that's why I call it this bottom-up approach which empowers and it's far more democratic. So, uh, you know, you've touched on some uh, other huge issues
0: that separate the two different approaches. I think it's really important that you said, you know, that you said it's a democratic approach as well because, you know, when we use words and you used it yourself, you know, I I think it's very appropriate that that it's like a revolution. It's very important that, you know, it's a very different kind of revolution because when you said it's knowledge rich, I mean, that's something that's actually really empowering. It's a, revolu- it's a different kind of revolution. It's a revolution not just changing of the guard, so to speak, not just changing of power or, or for, a, you know, but a kind of a synergistic a revo- revolution to, I don't know what we'd call it, we'd have to think of something else, but it's a very different kind of approach to a revolution and, you know, indicated by the fact you said it's a very democratic, uh, very democratic thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's ironical because um, your good questions are pr- – teasing out different thoughts. If you like, industrial agriculture has a development of, of violence about Yes. There's attacking and the domination and the poisoning and the killing. There's a domination by big power. Regenerative agriculture, you're flipping that. As we discussed, it's knowledge rich, it empowers the individual, and you're trying to regenerate and not kill. So um, it's sort of ironical, isn't it, that this revolution is a peaceful one. <laughs> Uh, one based on peace and uh, regeneration and health, rather than uh, the opposite. So uh, that's why I'm confident it will succeed because it's not sort of trying to um,
0: set up um, uh, a violence. It, it's it's a peaceful change. Mm,
2: mm, mm.
0: I, I think they uh, add an element. If you know, if I could be presumptuous to add a little bit a bit to it, what I think that. While it's very peaceful, and that's that's like you said, it's the biggest impact because it's opposite this violence. I think the thing for me that was so significant and so significant regenerative agriculture is it's also very. uh, I mean, you can see it from your level of excitement. It's very it's very impactful. I mean, you know, like we said, it's a movement of farmers. So that level of the action is immediate. You know what I mean? I I came from a um, when I first started learning about agriculture after being involved in a little bit of family agriculture, which was all conventional. I learned first about permaculture and you know why I love the movement. I think it's very special, but, um, a lot of the time over there, it would, you know, sometimes it would get a bit too trapped up in, in moving around and actually, you know, on getting on the ground and doing something. That's why I so much love to make the shift myself to a more like, you know, being around farmers and the agricultural approach, because it, it's really, there's a lot of, it, it, it's very powerful, that action side of it. I think, you know, things that the knowledge, is learned and then immediately it's it's uh, it's taken out into the field and, and done something with. And I think that's a very powerful element. I'm curious in your opinion.
1: Yeah, look, and no argument there, totally agree. And I think the other exciting component we never want to forget is that uh, this movement really uh, interacts with the urban population um, and it's about health and it empowers them with knowledge and uh, heritage seeds to grow different foods and to start what we used to do in the depressions and the and the world wars, start growing more of our own food in u- urban backyards and then developing community gardens and rooftop gardens and gardens on walls. There's all that sort of stuff that uh, you, you may not be able to feed billions, but you can certainly start to get your own uh, healthy attitudes in the city while you're trying to access, you know, food from... Um, your, your, your local farmer's market or something. So it's, it's not just about farmers in many ways, it's, it's, it's the whole integrated uh, change in society where um, the urban people can start thinking
0: about health as well. Mm, mm, yeah, fantastic point. Um, if there was, uh, Charles, if there was a bit of advice or an action to do or a message that you could give to that person that was moved by these stories or, or connections today or also, you know, through reading a book, um, and especially, you know, we talk about this element of urban people, or, or farmers, or I- anyone really that's, you know, that's I- I impacted by this a little bit. What's that? What's that thing that you would give that bit of advice or that action to do or that message? What would you say the most significant one thing that you know someone could do or, or learn?
2: Well, I guess for,
0: for your urban person,
1: I would encourage them to go to a local um, organic garden in the city and just start asking questions and see what's involved. Buy some food and see how different it does taste and how good it is for you. Mm. And then, um, you know, continue to get yourself educated. And for farmers, um, there's a lot of information out there now, but if you're thinking of making a shift, go and have a look at the good examples before you jump in and spend too much capital on fencing or wire or machinery. Just do your homework um, and 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 start to get a feel of the results and, and there's a lot of good material around now written and on the web that, uh, and, and, you know, your sorts of podcasts and all the others. So um, there's no lack of information. You know, it's a matter of about putting your toe in the water rather than jumping in and, and carefully doing your homework but, um, and realise that the dominant worldview that's thrust down our, our throats is, is a very limited one compared to this ancient and now excitingly new movement.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it's really 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 important a really important message I really really appreciate it i really wanted to acknowledge you um charles for your um your part in this you know the when you the, the people that have you go through so many bring tr- so many examples and stories out of people i mean also we, we had a um a guest on a couple of times richard perkins i'm not sure if you know about him he's uh, um he's got a farmer in uh, in uh, um in sweden and he's got a very big online school and a lot of students that have come out of it. And he's very entrepreneurial. And um, the, he's also bringing out all these stories. And I think this, this idea of sharing so many stories is, is a very, very powerful tool. Because when people we're talking about farmers now, people that want to be farmers, when they get this, you know, um, abundance of stories of people that you can do it and you can do it too. And it can also look, you know, very, very good and profitable and, you know, all those three bottom lines, you know, spiritually, uh, uh, materially and economically, it can, it can work. I think that's the most empowering uh, thing, we, you know, and it speaks to everything we talked about today, all the communication and, and all those different elements. I think, so I really wanted to acknowledge you, Charles, about your particular um, work about sharing these, you know, so many stories and, you know, get, getting that knowledge out there.
1: Now, look, thanks, Aaron, and I, and I would say the same. Your, your program and others like it are playing a huge role and uh, uh, all I've done is gather stories of, of some of the real innovators and doers and uh, it's a pretty easy task, it's just a matter of getting it out
0: there, isn't it, which is what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, the it's a, it's a, it's a easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world to just get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yep, and that's really the secret of Regen Ag, getting out of the way of Mother Nature. Um, Charles, could we just put your video on, just so we can say goodbye to the to, goodbye to the listeners? I want to give them a bit of a a view. Anyone that's watching in, <laughs> that might give them a fright.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry it didn't work because uh, <laughs> might be a good thing. They might have stayed watching. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's great. Anyway, huh? Thanks, buddy. It was uh, good program. Excellent. I really appreciate your time today, uh, Charles. And if anyone wants to get in contact, where, where can they? I mean, obviously we're gonna we're gonna recommend you a book. Um, is there? And you've got several other books. Is there anywhere anyone can get in contact with what you do or, you know, that they've you down, your name down on YouTube or something like that?
2: Uh, well, if you
1: Google YouTube, there's plenty of stuff. I'm, I'm not involved in all that. I'm sort of a, a uh, not reclusive, but I like my privacy out here on the farm and um, just get on and write and um, look after my animals and stuff. But um, So I don't have a website or anything like that. My, my daughters tell me I should, but I think if you Google Google uh, Get on the web you'd find some of my talks and um powerpoint presentations and that sort of thing
2: mm, mm,
0: mm. fantastic So you know if, um you could definitely any of our listeners you can um i've i've gone deeply into the into the content of um dr charles massey and you can find plenty of content on, on youtube there's a very particularly very good one with alan savory where you're talking it's a, a conversation they're very very fantastic um content and especially the slideshows I'm hoping you know, we might be able to get um uh, Charles on the on, on to do a sort of slideshow at some point in the future. And um make sure you catch the catch the book. Um I'm hoping to read it very, very soon. I've only got the little excerpts of it. So anyone that's out there definitely want to read. Um this is one of the most significant books. And I've got from all of our viewers, I mean we put out a thing, you know, who's read the book and how to how to enjoy it. Across the board, everyone was just it was a really the main word, if I could pick one word, was transformation. Everyone talked about this. This idea of transformation, and you know that 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 kind of like a transformational book that 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 kind of work, these words come up a lot. So, so check that out. And um, uh, for us, you can catch us on all the usual channels. We're also finally on YouTube now. So, um, and we'll have uh, uh, subtitles into the local language in Hebrew very soon. So, the people that um, can't catch this because the English isn't good enough, it'll be it'll be out soon. And um, yeah, just sort of thanks again for joining us, Charles. And we'll catch you on the next one. Look forward to seeing you again. No, thanks, mate,
1: and I hope they can understand our Australian accents.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I actually true. tell you the truth, Charles, I find it coming out a little bit more with you because, you know, uh, um, you know, it's an elder and and it's, uh, and it's Australia. I feel it coming back a little bit. You know, my grandfather's name was also Charles, so maybe I felt that, that plain sense.
1: <laughs> anyway, thanks. keep up your good work and good stuff.
0: Thank you. you. Thank, thank.